Carol Lacey published a story on a Christian website a while back that gave me theological heartburn. It was a testimony about her golf game. Now, I don't dislike it just because it's about golf. But you know, if I had to choose between playing golf again and a root canal, I would choose the root canal every time. <laughs> no, I, I hate Carol's story because I think it gives us a false idea about how God works. Carol's round of golf, she says, started out badly. After three putting the first hole and four putting the second hole, she then personalized a scripture and said, Carol shall call on me and I will answer her and keep her from trouble. And then Carol prayed, Lord, I'm miserable and sore, but it's opening day and I had to show up. Will you please help me get through this round? And Lord, let me give you glory today somehow, unquote. Well, on the fourth hole, she got a hole in one. Then on the 13th hole, she got another ace. And Carol fell to her knees and said, Lord, what are you doing to me? She's the second woman in history to do this, 67 million to one odds. Well, that's not the way God works, let me tell you. Giving God credit does not guarantee holes in one. I've tried. <laughs> Honoring God does not keep trouble away. Honoring God does not make life easy. It doesn't make you rich. It doesn't make relationships trouble-free. And it doesn't guarantee protection. And since that's true, you might wonder, well, why should I honor God then? Is there any benefit to worship, to giving, to prayer, to serving, to making right choices? What's the payoff? You wonder, well, what's the point of honoring God if it doesn't guarantee health and benefit and success or blessing? Is there a logical, rational reason for that? Well, this story in the life of Abram speaks to that question this morning. As we're studying through Genesis these last three weeks have focused on choices, choices made by Abram and others here. In chapter 12, we saw there are choices we can make to fulfill the promise of God, the purpose of God in our lives. In chapter 13, we discovered guidelines for making godly choices. And now we are in chapter 14, and it really begins with a war that's described here. It's the first battle mentioned in Scripture uh, four kings from the north, and let me just picture them for you. Four kings from the north go to war against five kings from the south. Uh, the south was rebelling against the north. I'm sorry that sounds familiar, but this has happened a long, long time ago. <laughs> the five rebel cities were located in the vicinity of the Dead Sea. Only the names of all these kings, only the names of Sodom and Gomorrah live on in infamy. Now, over the years, archaeologists have identified possible sites for these cities, particularly Sodom. Uh, 50 years ago, this is, a, this is a textbook I had from 50 years ago, and I, I took uh, courses like History of the Ancient Near East and Biblical Archaeology, not quite 50 years ago, but close enough. Uh, and back then, this was the consensus that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and these other rebel cities are located now what is under the Dead Sea. So I've circled in yellow for you what that textbook says. That that's where the cities are, about 20 feet under salt water today. That was the consensus about 50 years ago. Well, after years of looking, no evidence was found that there were any cities under the Dead Sea. In 2021, 2021, a scientific study was published that found remains of an ancient civilization that could be ancient Sodom. And this was reported by many different news outlets, including the Times of Israel, 
Christianity Today, and so on. And I've marked on the map where that uh, ancient uh, civilization is located. Biblical Archaeology Review called this site a strong candidate for the city of Sodom. Now, there are other experts that aren't quite so sure, but what made headlines, and it did make headlines, was that the study found that this civilization that they thought was ancient Sodom had been wiped out by a catastrophic explosion 3,600 years ago. Now, as we go through Genesis, you're going to see why that's significant. Now, um, the three smaller cities of the rebels, uh, they, there's no evidence of them. They're obliterated from history to an extent. But why did these five kings rebel against the four kings? Well, Genesis 14 tells us that they, the, these five kings had been paying tribute to the uh, north for 12 years, and then they decided, we don't want to do this anymore. And so they didn't pay tribute for a year. And so then in the 13th year, after the 13th year, the, the uh, north said, well, we're, we're going to do something about that. And they went and did battle with them, and they routed the southern kings. Now, the first nine verses of the chapter we're studying this morning is filled with all kind of detail about the names of all nine kings, uh, the names of the cities and the places, the cause of the war, the alliances, the timeline, the location of the battle, and troop movements. All that's in the first nine verses. Why do we have so much detail about this? Well, for one thing, it authenticates the historicity of this account. Uh, more importantly, it emphasizes that this war had international significance in the ancient world, that these five ki southern kings controlled the territory through which commerce between kingdoms passed, so it was a very important place, and this incident impacted international trade. So uh, the north has gone and they've uh, gone after the south, they've been routed, the south has been routed, and as these rebels retreat, look what happens. We'll pick it up here, verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. So the tar pits are places where petroleum oozed to the surface, you know, Black gold, Texas tea. <laughs> and we saw back in chapter 11 that this tar was used in construction for bricklaying. And the language here indicates that there was one tar pit after another here in this valley, the valley where the war had taken place. And as the rebels retreated, a few fell into these tar pits, while the rest kept running for the hills. The victorious armies of the north started the journey home, loaded with plunder and captives. Verse 12, they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So finally, we learn how this international incident is connected to our main character, who hasn't been mentioned yet in the first nine verses, Abram. We've been learning all about him and his nephew Lot, and uh, all of a sudden we know how this story connects. Uh, Lot is among those captured. Now last week we talked about Lot's disastrous choice, where he decided to move his tent near Sodom, and what he saw was a beautifully well-watered valley, uh, even though we knew the people were extremely wicked. And now we're told that Lot actually moved into Sodom. He didn't just move next to it, he moved into it, and has ended up as a prisoner of war. Well, Abram found out about the plight of his nephew from a man who escaped and uh, went and told him, now look at uh, Abram's response to this report. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and its possessions together with the women and the other people. So this one individual, Abram, inserts himself into an international incident. Now, Abram had significant resources. You must appreciate that. Those 318 men were not hired mercenaries. They were his own crew, born in his household. Now, uh, I've, it's been a few years, but I, I've participated in paintball a few times. All right, for those of you who don't know, it's like you, you shoot paintballs. Uh, pellets at, at each other, and you're usually wearing, you know, a, a mask, a helmet, and not too much else. So you come away with, you're not only splattered with paint, but you get little bruises all over your body uh, if you're not very good at it. So I've done it a, a couple of times, and uh, so this is years ago. A bunch of my church buddies, we all went to a paintball one Saturday, and it was a mixture. I'm trying to remember all of those who, those I remember who were, were part of it were like bankers and a real estate agent and a, an IT guru and a counselor and teachers and financial advisors and, and pastors. And this one insurance executive who I too late learned had served in the Gulf War as an Army Ranger. Now, I was feeling really good about the fact that I had paintballed a couple of times and I used to hunt and, you know, pretty good about that. He nailed me. But I didn't get a shot off. It was horrible. And, and he won paintball. Why? He's trained. And we were not. The Hebrew word here for trained, it, 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 the word is kunik, and it's a rare word that refers to men practiced in weaponry. So he had 318, not just willing people. These are trained people. And so they're equipped and they're ready for battle. And so Abram led this special ops force about 170 miles. They made a surgical strike under cover of darkness against these victorious armies and defeated them. And uh, Abram returns in victory. And not only does he bring back Lot, his nephew, but everything and everyone that had been taken. Verse Following that, after Abram returned from defeating Ketelomar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So king of Sodom, we know, Abram just saved his bacon. Where did this Melchizedek guy come from? He appears out of nowhere. He's not one of the nine kings listed. All the detail in those first few verses, Melchizedek's not even hinted at. How does he fit in? And he comes to Abram bringing bread and wine. What's that about? Well, obviously, if nothing else, Abram needed nourishment after fighting a battle 175 miles from home. But more importantly, Melchizedek brings blessing from the true God. He is a priest of El Elyon, which is translated Most High God, or literally, the God who is really God. And Melchizedek is no pagan or polytheist. He's a priest representing El Elyon. And in response, Abram gives him an offering, a tenth. Why? Nowhere in Scripture is there a command to give a tenth of the spoils of war to a priest. What was Abram doing? Well, it was not a gift to bribe God into helping him. 
the victory was already won. Abram was expressing thanks. He was honoring God for what had already been done. And this becomes important when you see what happens next. Verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now think about the arrogance of that for a second. This guy had just been rescued, and he's claiming that he has the ability to give Abram anything. He doesn't. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you from a thread to a sandal strap so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. So Sodom's king offers Abram all the spoils and demands something he has no right to claim. And yet Abram says, I'm not going to accept anything at all. I remember uh, years ago, my Hebrew professor talking about this thread to a shoelace deal. And he said, here's why we in, as in the Western world have trouble understanding what's happening here. Because we are more linear in our thinking. So we think Abram's saying, I'm not going to accept anything from you from a, a little thread all the way to a sandal strap, which is not a very big difference. But he said, no, in the, in the ancient East, they thought in circular terms. So what Abram's doing, he's saying from here to here, he's saying, I'm not going to accept anything from thread all the way around to everything in the world, all the way back to a sandal strap. Nothing. See, very different way to think. And Abram emphasizes that he has promised God that he would not take anything from Sodom at all. And there's a clear contrast here. Abram is faced with two choices. One of them offers him a fortune. The other offers praise to God. And Abram refuses one and he gives gifts to the other. What's going on? Now to truly understand, we need to look closely at these names here. Okay, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, uh, means king of righteousness and peace. Whereas Bera, the king of Sodom, means son of evil, burning and scorching. Big difference. So Bera, king of Sodom, rules over the most vile, perverse, morally corrupt city in the world. He represents the ultimate end of humankind as it turns away from God. And that's the choice Abram has. The king of righteousness and peace, or the king of burning and evil. Will Abram honor the one true God who gave him the victory, or will he take wealth and recognition from the son of evil? And what happened is that Abram gave honor to God, not in hopes of getting victory, but in thanks for a victory already won. Now, all of this brings us to Jesus, as all Scripture should, because this strange story of Melchizedek involves him. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 says Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You see, Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. And then Hebrews goes on to describe this very incident we just talked about in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere and blesses Abraham. And see, like, unlike all the other characters we've met in Genesis, there's no genealogy for Melchizedek. We don't know his father's name. We don't, we're not told how and when he became a priest to the Most High God. Melchizedek just appears and already is. And because of that, Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus, who from the beginning was God, who, who the Father sent into this world to be our Savior and Redeemer, that Jesus is our great high priest who opened the way to God by becoming the sacrifice for our sin. And Hebrews concludes this by saying, chapter 7, verse 25, therefore Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I want to affirm for you today that Jesus came to save you totally, not partially, not conditionally, not for a deserving few. Trust in Jesus and you are saved completely. 
So what happens when the enemy assaults you with the memory of your past sins and your bad decisions and terrible choices? And the enemy says, look at all the wrongs that you've done. There's this long list of your hateful thoughts and immoral acts and nasty words and selfish choices. Who are you to sit in church and act like you're a holy one? How can you possibly be saved? You messed up raising your kids. All the stuff you've... If people knew what you'd done, they would be horrified. That's what the enemy whispers to us. And Satan brings that junk to your mind over and over again. And you start thinking, maybe I can't be saved. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I shouldn't serve the Lord. And Satan uses your past sinfulness to rob you of your present holiness. But do you see that when Jesus offered a sacrifice for you, his sacrifice atoned in every dimension and in every direction, that he saves completely. And so every time you feel assaulted by Satan, every time he reminds you of your past sin and you begin to feel defeated, say this, Jesus saved me completely. He saved me forever. His grace is greater than all my sin. Not just for a day, not just for a year, but forever. That's the gospel truth. And so with that in mind, if Abram honored Melchizedek, how much more should we be honoring our Lord Jesus Christ? Honor him, not so that he will give you a victory, Honor him because he has already given you the victory over sin and death and hell. And that means that even if you get cancer, even if the price of oil drops to zero, even if the business goes belly up, even if your marriage is on life support, even if your friend betrays you, even if you lose a loved one, worship the God who is God. Because you see, God is looking for a people who love him more than his blessings. Earlier this year, 93-year-old Rupert Murdoch proposed to Anne Leslie Smith. That would have been Murdoch's fifth marriage, but the engagement was called off. His previous spouses include former model Jerry Hall and film producer Wendy Ding. How does an elderly man... Now, I can call him elderly, right? 93. Come on. <laughs> Somebody called me elderly. I got upset. But 93... How does an elderly man attract women who are 30 and 40 years younger and much better looking than he is? How does he pull that off? Well, I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that he's a billionaire. Do you? <laughs> or that Forbes magazine ranked him as the 13th most powerful person in the world. Number 13. But I know if I was him, I would wonder all the time, does she love me? Or is it my money and power? Now, do you see how this relates to Abram's story in Genesis 14? Probably not, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Why do you worship? Why do you serve? Why do you pray? Why do you give? Why do you live to please God? And if your answer is, I do this so God will bless me, that's not the relationship God wants. Think of it in terms of family. If you love your spouse based mainly on how good they look or what they do for you, your marriage is on shaky ground at best. If your child's affection for you is based on what you give them, then you are going to produce a self-centered child. Now, let me caveat. You're allowed to do that as a grandparent, okay? 
spoil them all you want. If they don't turn out right, that's their parents' fault. You do whatever you want. Amen. <laughs> you see, God desires worship for who he is and not simply for what he gives. Salem and Sodom are always before us. You and I constantly face the same choice that Abram did. And you can view life as your achievement, your glory, that you did it, or you can see it as coming from the hand of the God who is God. And you're either out for yourself or you're trusting God for everything. You're either glad-handing the powerful, connected people or you're bowing before the King of Kings. God desires worship, not because he keeps you healthy or increases your net worth or gives you an incredible family or brings you happiness or protects you from accidents. He desires worship because he is the most high God. He wants people who love him more than they love his blessings. So when you have family and health and food and shelter and job, worship and praise come pretty easily, don't they? But it's when you've been mistreated when you've been downsized, when you've been forgotten, rejected, diseased, destitute, grieving over the loss of a loved one, that's when your true relationship with God is tested. Will you still bless God even if you have nothing? When life is stripped bare, do you love him or his blessings? God is looking for worshipers. That is people who, despite the pain, the fear, the failure, the loss, the shattered dreams, still cling to the Savior as the only Savior. And those are the people who know that even through the valley of the shadow of death, the only God who is God is still there, no matter what. Everything God has promised has come true in Jesus. And so I invite you to worship the one who has saved you completely, not so he will bless you, but because he already has. Joe Bailey wrote about one of the great losses that he and his wife Mary Lou experienced. He says, our, our four-year-old had leukemia, and he was one of those children who early in life developed and displayed a love for Jesus. And after being around the hospital and the physicians, that he decided he wanted to become a medical missionary. We had him anointed for healing in accordance with James 5, and we believed that he had been healed. We told our other children that. We told doctors and friends that. And he was an unusually good remission for about nine months when he suddenly went downhill. The doctor said, he might live another two weeks. He might not. It's up to you to decide if you want him in the hospital. And we said, if, if he's going to die anyway, we'd rather have him die at home. And we sat with our little boy until he died. It would have been a great deal of comfort to us for our little boy to have shown that desire to be with Jesus then that he'd shown earlier. But when we talked about heaven and Jesus coming for him and carrying him away in his arms, he asked us, will you go with me? And we had to say, we'll come later, but we can't go with you now. And he said, well, then I don't want to go. What child, feeling as he did, would want to take a trip without his parents? And right up until the time that he died, there was no spiritual encouragement for us, and he died quite violently. And Joe summed up that terrible time with these words. If you have to have answers, you're going to be leaning on a deceptively weak crutch. But if you trust Jesus Christ in the darkness as you're trusting him in the light, he'll take you through those dark days, those unanswered questions. The interesting thing for us is that in spite of not having answers, we did not doubt God's love. Mary Lou and I were never more sure of God's love for us than when we turned from a fresh grave. We believe God's primary work is not to shield us from suffering, 
Not to treat us like spoiled children who never have any difficulty. That God's purpose is to make us like Jesus. And like Him, we learn obedience through the things we suffer. And we don't go through our sorrows and our losses and our sufferings alone. As Isaiah 53 says of Christ, He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And it is true. Friends, it is true. It is true. Let's pray. And now, may you be surrounded by the grace of God. He is the one who called you to his eternal glory through Jesus Christ. Will you boldly embrace his promise that after you've suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you and place you on a firm foundation. All power belongs to him forever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.